Hi, everyone. This is Designing Futures with me, Angela Ye. If you are a subscriber and an avid listener, thank you for joining us and welcome back. And if you're new to the podcast, I hope that you enjoy what you're about to hear and this gives you some clarity and insights to how to build a thriving career in design. So as you may know, this podcast was brought to you by Thrive by Design and Yay Ideology. Thrive by Design is our masterclass program where we develop a method to really empower design professionals and creative leaders like you through our methods, our lessons, and teaching people in design how to build a thriving career in design, how to build clarity around your choices. This is about choosing which direction to go through rather than moving down that path without that insight. You know, we want to help you save years and years of your time so that you can get to that point and succeed and live in that state of success in design, which is something I think we all strive for. To learn more about Thrive by Design, you can go to thrivebydesign.today. And if you are a company and an employer and you want to you know, develop a stronger relationship with your talent, cultivate them, and thus in the end, retain the best talent, then you can always go to yayideology.com. So I just, I'm excited because today I get to interview a dear friend of mine, Michael DeTullo. For those of you who don't know Michael, he is the founder and creative chief um, director of Michael DeTullo LLC. Michael has created iconic and innovative products and brand experiences for companies that want to disrupt their category and impact culture. He's skilled in brand positioning, innovation strategy, product road mapping, and industrial design packaging, OOBE. Michael, what's OOBE? That out-of-box experience. Okay, there you go. OOBE, out-of-box really, experience. It's really expensive packaging design. <laughs> Oh, and you know how that really does grab customers, right? Right. That's so critical. We're thinking like Apple is a great example. And I'm sure Michael will talk about that as well. But Michael's also, you know, covers categories like retail experience, interior architecture, and marketing strategy, design experience uh, within consumer electronics, IoT, smart devices, robotics, footwear, sportswear, technical apparel, transportation, and automotive industries. Basically, everything that the world cares about and loves to, you know, covet and purchase, Michael is amazing at it, right? <laughs> so the one, the one thing I haven't gotten to, to get done yet, it's on, it's on the list is getting some production furniture in, and then I'll just feel like, okay, I've, I've but, okay. but, uh, but I'm getting I don't closer. know if any of those businesses are out there, if you want to be the lucky one to have Michael touch yeah. your brand and create amazing products for you. Hint, 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 um, line up. <laughs> you got to put it out in the world, right? So. Yeah, put it out in the universe, right? Absolutely. So Michael, psyched to have you here with us. I mean, seriously, you cover so many different categories. And well, let me just say also, you and I know this, right? We're coming, we're speaking from the choir. Designers love that range and variety. But let me also say, having looked as a recruiter, as a career coach, having seen so many portfolios, thousands upon thousands, right? Um, Not everyone is good at all of those categories. And I know, because I've seen your work. If anyone has not seen Michael's work, Michael, where can I go to look at your website and to see your, you know, the body of your work? 
Yeah, you can, you can go to michaeldtulo.com. Uh, I'm a big believer in branding consistency, obviously. So <laughs> uh, you can go to michaeldtulo.com or if you want to be more up to the second, you can go to uh, my Instagram, which is just a phonetic spelling of, of my last name. So it's Instagram uh, at d2lo, letter D, number two, L-O. Oh, uh, I love that. Yeah, it just helps people to say the name. It's a I'm doing and, the acronym, and I love the number phonetic combo. That's fun. It's it's how I I used to just explain to people how to say it, and and mm -hmm. then uh, mm -hmm. you know before Instagram turned into such a, a a business kind of a thing, it was my my fun little Instagram when I was chief design officer of Sound United, and then I left five years ago to to start my own practice and. My, my wife, Christina, is my, my partner in the practice. And we had this, this long debate over what to name it. And, you know, everybody has their snappy two-syllable space-themed design firm name, which is great. And, and I had my long list of names. And Christina was like, you know, everybody knows you. You're the one that's been writing for years for different design publications. You're out front. You already have, you know, 40,000 Instagram followers. Like, we just need to make the business your name because that's what people are, are paying for us. What people want is your time. And so it felt a little strange as an individual to, to make your business your name, but it worked for Raymond Lowy and, mm -hmm. and uh, Frank Gary and, and a slew of others before me. So mm -hmm. I love it. I love that you've come to this point. You know, I, I remember a, an earlier conversation I had with someone else about naming your name. And I do believe that we are coming into the age of thought leadership. But let, let's also, I, I want to acknowledge also that you have built an incredible body of work, exceptional quality of work, that in the end, whatever company you worked for it, throughout your career, corporation, consultancy, people knew, particularly the people around you, knew that that work was yours, really who, who was responsible and like the whispers where everybody was, of course, that was Michael, Michael Zatula, right? So you get to own that. Um, right. I mean, I, I've had people where it's like, I've, I remember other conversations where people, so this is fascinating on, on branding yourself, you know, because this is also some of the work that we do is helping someone decide like, how do you brand and position yourself? And for you, you, you get to own that. Some people, I think sometimes the credibility doesn't exist just yet for them actually. Yeah. And I, I definitely, you know, everybody has their own path. And I remember, you know, speaking to Hartmut Esslinger, who started Frog Design. He started Frog right out of school, right? He had no portfolio. He had no contacts and, and, and built it up. And I, I've taken a very different path where I worked for 20 years before starting my own practice. And so I had this body of work and I had worked for Nike for uh, almost eight years and had been a creative director at Frog and had been a chief design officer of a corporation. So, you know, I was just starting at a very different place, right? With 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 a body of work and a, a list, a long list of contacts. Also, I think a a there's a trust factor, and I think design's a trust business, right? We're being mm -hmm. we're being asked these very difficult, ambiguous questions. It's it's our job to help the the client or the brand answer that question. And so who do you trust to do that work? Who do you trust to do it in a way that is going to be a great process together and they're going to do it confidentially and they're going to you know, land the plane, as I like to say, right? We're going to get you mm. to the results. And 
mm-hmm. not just going to hand you off a, a million dollar PowerPoint. I want you to launch something that's successful. I love that. You know, you said landing the plane and I, there's a visual that we're going to use about <laughs> when someone's evolving the career, it's like they're midway in it. You know, they're the people at the plane is in mid flight. So I'm thinking about for you, you're obviously, and for, in fact, for anyone in design, most of the time, if you're working with an existing business, they're kind of trying to fix that plane while they're flying it. True. So it's not just landing. I mean, landing is the end goal, but what I'm realizing is what, you know, and maybe we unpack that a little bit. One question to me is, yeah, trust is important, right? Trust. And, and I think from the business standpoint, there is first the challenge of not knowing who to work with because there's so many designers out there and everyone, the claim and the famous line that I think we all love, this industry loves this line. I'm a designer and I solve problems. But as a tagline, that's beautiful. But right. 20 years ago, but now we have like, thousands of hundreds of thousands of designers so many ilks and combinations right that that from the business standpoint it's like which one do i work with and i do think i do think it is important to differentiate right and and Mm -hmm. i don't know this this might be relevant to to your audience so stop me if we're taking the conversation in a different way but Mm -hmm. but i I feel like i see a lot of portfolios out there in the world that seem very similar and they're very competent but you're Mm -hmm. like oh wow it's another white box with uh, radii on every corner and a blinking light and it's it changes the world right and you're like yeah. that's a com- that's a commoditization and a, an, a, an aesthetic commoditization happening right now in design where i think in a way my generation benefited from isolation right i went to design school in the 90s like the only way to see and I, I went to RISD the only way to see what was happening at Pratt or MassArt was to go there <laughs> You couldn't just like hop on Instagram and see what everybody else was doing. You couldn't build a Pinterest board around it. There was just no way to see that. And I I feel like on on one level, it's been great because I think it's, it's raised skill levels really high, but on the other level, I feel like it's, it's maybe prevented people from taking risks because they're like, oh, that's how you do it. And there's a lot of emulation and Mm. emulation is great while you're learning, but eventually you need to have your, your own point of view. And I think that's why we charge a premium is because clients are paying for my unique point of view to get to a a unique result. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I give you Um, one one quick example of that recently. So, so this year, this is five years that I've had my uh, independent practice and it's been um, an amazing year. We had three really big client launches in the beginning of the year. One was for a company called Kire out of San Diego, where I connected them with my old employer, Nike, and we're making architectural uh, ceiling systems that are filled with recycled Nikes. Uh, another was for a company out of Miami called Defender. They make products for people with diabetes, and we were able to create this really highly functional boot for people with diabetes to prevent amputations. And, and by the way, somebody loses a limb to diabetes every 20 seconds in the world, and it's hundred percent preventable, but we were able to do that in a way that was highly functional, but also highly aesthetic because the insight is product can't work if it stays in someone's closet. But the, the third product that launched this year is a um, first startup out of LA called ARC. Uh, it's a bunch of former SpaceX engineers who started an electric boat company. 
these really, I mean, amazingly smart people, amazingly capable, but you know, they, they had never made a consumer product before. And so they're going from making rockets that, that a consumer never gets to touch to a $300,000 speedboat. And so working with them and trying to find the right line between kind of a traditional luxury performance speedboat and something that communicates that it's electric and the first boat they actually are taking orders now the first boat test boat went out maybe six months ago or so and one of the engineers was telling me they were pulling the test boat out of the water in long beach and somebody came up to her as they were winching it out of the water and was like is that boat electric and she was like michael nailed it like that's exactly what like no no marketing no information it's it's a test boat and the guy was like it's electric right and so Again, the power of differentiation, the power of having a point of view, and, and that is that is what brings value. It's not just about mm. solving the problem. That's like the bare minimum. You just have to check the box. What do you bring above that? I love how just the prototyping or whatever, that early phase that you're just playing with that someone walked by and knew visually by looking at it, that it was electric. I'm thinking of how so many brands Think about the goal of visual brand language. I have corporate clients who say, we need to have a design leader who's going to help us create our BBL and update it, or, you know, that that's the goal, right? But beyond just a logo or a signature arc in a curve, right? Right. There's a lot more than, than that for someone to just visually on site for all the masses who don't even know anything about design to just pick up on the quality, the, the functionality of it. And I think that's a design sensibility that takes years to cultivate this nuanced understanding. I think, and again, another, another 90s kind of a ism. I think in the 90s, we used to often say the term iconic design. And, mm. and I think it's fallen out of fashion a little bit. I think design has tended to more quieter solutions. Uh, but for me, it always resonated because to me, when you break down, I think iconic design started to mean just kind of being wacky and, and differentiation for differentiation's sake. I don't, I'm not an advocate for that. Mm. Uh, to me, iconic design is about creating an icon. And what is an icon? An icon is a symbol, right? And what is a symbol? A symbol is a way to communicate something. So in the way it, in, of this boat, I feel like we created a very iconic design in that even though it feels very acceptable as a boat, you look at it and you're like, that's electric. Like, I think the Rivian pickup truck does a great job of that. Where you're like, mm-hmm. oh, that, that is still a pickup truck. It is a, a acceptable archetype, you know, of a silhouette of a pickup truck, but you look at it and you're immediately like, oh, that's electric. Let me ask you, I mean, I know you, I've known your work and you know, I've seen your work and we've talked about your method and your process, right? But let's talk about these customers that, that there is still this ongoing challenge for business, anyone in business, right? Anybody, a chief innovation, uh, not forget chief innovation officer, outside of creative leadership, you know, a CEO, chief marketing officer, product officer, engineer, like someone who doesn't know what design is, right? And they meet you, they go, oh, I love your work. Um, how do you... <laughs> How do you um, walk them through that journey, customer's journey of realizing 
first, you might meet someone who doesn't know anything about the design process. How do you mm -hmm. speed them forward to have them realize what it is that's so singular about the way you do it? And obviously, they've seen your work on your site, but what kind of um, mental journeys do you think create? And, and this is a great question. I think, you know, our audience, they're mostly creative professionals, design mm -hmm. leaders, creative professionals. We're not even talking just industrial, you know, design, you know, service design, product design, industrial, UX, you know, even marketing or architecture and video, like creative professionals, whatever their ilk, I think that there's an overarching challenge they have with business, right? What's your sense of when you meet companies that come to you? What are you gauging? What are you thinking of? What do you have to move them through? Yeah, well, I mean, I could tell you why my clients tell me that they pick me over sometimes much larger, more established firms. And yeah. what, what I, whenever I, I ask them, what I hear consistently is that you seem like you'd be helpful. <laughs> and, you know, I make it about them not about me. When I had a, a client uh, introduce me to one of the a CEO, introduced me to someone on the board of directors and they're like, this is, oh, this is Michael. Like this product is his baby. He designed it for us. And I was like, you know, I can't, I can't take that compliment. Like we did it together. I, I was the designer on it, but mm -hmm. your team and my team, we did it together. And I think that's my, that's just kind of my, my approach. And I, I think you, you get that integration and you get that trust and that allows you to push the boundaries a little bit further because like you said most of the time I'm, I'm typically talking with the ceo of a company or someone with a, a c-level title who's mm. most of the time not a designer you know i have a couple yeah. of clients where i work with a head of design but it's it's more rare and so they may not know a lot about design it's not their job to um, I don't, I don't need them to, what I, what I need them to be is open, right. And, and conversational with me. So I can pull out from them why it is this company exists. If they're the founder, why, why they started it, what their kind of hopes and dreams for it are. If they're a C-level executive at a bigger company, trying to understand the history of the company. I remember I was doing a design language system for, I was like, this brand is, I'm close to hundred years old. It's a Canadian brand. And I, in the, the first round review, I just did like a synopsis of their history and their CEO was like, holy crap, is this true? And I was like, yeah, yeah. I just, he's like, where did you get this from? I was like, I just a lot of Google searching and reading through old stuff, old, old magazines about your company. And, and then I just put it into two paragraphs and he was like, this is because I need to understand who you are before I can figure out who you can be. And I, I, I think sometimes like when I, when I was working with, with ARC, because they're all engineers, the first exercise we did was to write the press release. And uh, they're like, we're, in, we're hired you to do the interior, exterior of the boat. Why are we starting with the press release? I'm like, because we're gonna put all of our hopes and dreams into this press, re you know, press release exercise and it's gonna, it helped me to understand them so much more. And it was amazing on, on launch day, uh, I believe Bloomberg was one of the first media outlets to pick up the boat launch and their Bloomberg headline was almost word for word what we wrote. <laughs> and really? I, was like, I, I remember I called up the CEO, I was like, that's what we wrote. And he's like, I know it's amazing. Well, um, and wait, so what makes it even more amazing is what I'm hearing is you guys didn't go to the, I mean, for the real official press release, there's a writer out there that wrote it. 
but you guys yeah. didn't guide. You didn't give them your template that you started. I didn't. But, no. but, but and also there's a you know there's a, a author at Bloomberg right so even no. even if the press release had that sentence they probably wouldn't use that sentence <laughs> if the headline, right? <laughs> right, so, right, right in my experience anyway I was really uh, really proud all three of those projects uh, the Arc Boat the Defender um, Boots and the the Cure uh, Air Baffle with Nike grind in it all three of those were were written up by Fast Company Amazing. huge shout out to Mark Wilson, the author who wrote all three of those articles. But I mean, I just, that doesn't happen very often. And in mm -hmm. two of the cases, the client had me out front doing the interview with the press. And I, I find that as the highest compliment. If the client is like, yeah, we want you to be quoted in the article. That means they feel that that trust is there, right? I love it. I love it. I mean, this is like post-pandemic. Here we are. It's June. Are you busy and slammed? I think you, you had mentioned something like this i'm like well, how what you know because there's some people in design that are not busy and but i i find more and more professionals right now in design are busy right we're being needed now this industry is being needed now more than ever i right. feel like i think the pandemic is all of a sudden a trigger but um from all accounts that i'm hearing we're going through the deck the next this decade is decade mm -hmm. of change constant change right and what better expertise than to guide business through change than design. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Angela. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was going to say, I think, I think a confluence of two things. One, you, that you've said like everything's changing and everything, you know, everything has been touched by this and it, it's gone. Everything. On. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and then consumer demand is really high across categories. So it's like you have this like almost voracious demand with a, with a supply chain issue, which has kept demand back and, and everything is different. And so, you know, as designers, we're well-placed to figure out like, okay, what does that different mean? And, and, I, and I think I'm thankful that at least most of the clients that I work with acknowledge the fact that we're gonna have to try stuff. <laughs> you know, we, we can't, we can make projections but in the end, like things will continue to shape uh, this next decade. And, and I think anybody who, who claims to know exactly where we'll be in 10 years is the person who probably knows the least about where we'll be in 10 years. <laughs> we just have to be really open. And I yeah. think designers are, it's kind of one of our superpowers typically is we're, we're, we're sponges, we're just absorbing everything and then filtering it back out to be like, okay, here's where it's going. Yeah, I love your point that anyone who claims to know what we're 10 years from now, where we'll be, if anything, it's it raises an alert, a red flag, like there's something this person is not being not aware of and, and acknowledging cognizant of this, right? This new era that we're moving into of constant change. Wow, I love it. I frame it as possibilities, right? Like, here's what we're seeing based on what we're seeing. Here's what we see some potential eventualities mm -hmm. being and could be a could be b could be somewhere in between um, yep. and so we can we can directionally say like hey like we might be moving to the northwest right like when we're moving we could kind of point the compass a little bit but um you know as you know the further you go out the less certain things get so you've been successful both corporate side consultancy side and i see this with a lot of professionals in design we love you know, walking into those worlds and, and seeing what's it like to be in both sides of those worlds. I think 
for many, there's the dream that one day I can create my own agency, my own consultancy. That is, I think, majority of creative professionals I have ever met. There's at some point in their career, if not, uh, there's that that thought, can I do it? And then they freelance, they, you know, get to consult, um, you know, you want to escalate it, you get to the point where you hire teams, sometimes they have to then, you know, reduce it and then grow, to do something else. Sometimes there's that point where they think, okay, this isn't working, I got to go corporate. You know, I've, I've seen people on the corporate side saying enough of this, now I'm ready to build my own agency. Yeah. Think about, and I've seen you do the exact same thing as well, right, going back and forth. Um, and I know when I've seen anyone like you, who've made that choice to go corporate consultancy back and forth, it gives you a certain perspective that you couldn't have had, like being on the corporate side has certainly informed you about when you're on the consultancy side, what it takes, what you're dealing with for your corporate clients, understand because you've been there. And the same thing when you're on the corporate side, there's still that need sometimes for that agency, right? To help out uh, from an outside perspective to trigger thought change, right? Inspire. What's your, you've built a successful consultancy, a couple of two things, I guess. What do you think you've gleaned from being back and forth from corporate, you know, entrepreneur, entrepreneur, back and forth? Any thought to that? And then, and then I'd love to hear, you know, your thoughts on what it takes to really run a, a consultancy and be successful at it. I think you have to do it all for the right reasons. You know, intention, mm -hmm. intention matters for so much in life, whether it's personal relationships or, or business relationships. And you know, for me, all of it has just been about curiosity, you know, so I, I started my career working for a consulting firm called Evo out of Connecticut, where I just, I just learned so much. Um, and I was just immersed in design 24 seven for four and a half years. But I, I started to get a curiosity of like, well, what's going on on the corporate side? Because a lot of times our work, like it doesn't come out or it comes out highly changed. And we were all kind of career consultants. So I wanted to go to the corporate side to, to, to discover that. And I, I thought I'd go for like two years and then come back to consulting, but I ended up working at Nike and I just, I loved it there. Uh, I loved the brand and talking about the, you know, iconic design being important, the, the brand is an icon. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm never, I'm not a particularly, I'm not into sports. I think I think working with athletes, they thought that that was hilarious. For me, it was more about the abstraction of like what it meant. Um, That's funny. I, re I remember my first time presenting to Carmelo Anthony. He, he was like, hey, did you see me in the game last night? I was like, no, did you see me draw the shoe last night? <laughs> and, uh, and it was real quiet for a moment. And I was like, oh, God, I stepped in it. And then he just started cracking up. He's like, I like this guy. <laughs> and I was like, all right, let's take a look at this shoe and see what, what we think here. And um, yeah. And, and, and it's just, you know, I love working with them because they are the best at what they do. They put so much crazy amounts of stress on the product. And for me, it was just a challenge, challenging. Uh, and then how do you take that functional solution and make it culturally relevant? So anyway, I thought I would, I, at, a, at a point, maybe I thought I would be there forever because I just loved it so much um, when Frog recruited me and to be creative director. And I was like, well, this is an opportunity to take my eight years of corporate learning mm. and bring it back to the consulting side. And, and at which point my mentor at Nike, uh, John Hoke was just like, thank you for not going to Adidas <laughs> and going somewhere where if you ever come back, you'll be more valuable to me having worked at Frog and other places. So yes, you know. absolutely. 
being on the consultancy side gives you the diversity of product category, sure. right? And having work, you get the opportunity to work with so many different types of corporations, right? Yeah. Industries. Yeah. And then, um, you know, and, and I really loved my time at Frog and I learned a ton about pitching much bigger projects and multi-million dollar projects, working pretty much only with C-level executives, but went back to the client side when an opportunity came to go work for Sound United. Sound United owns about seven or eight different audio brands. And so they asked me to be chief design officer over industrial design, packaging, UX, and all marketing creative. And I was like, this is kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity. I was very young. You know, I was always looking back, maybe a little too young when I, I was 30, when I became a director at Nike managing people. Oh my God. That's amazing. I love it. And, and let me say that yeah. when you became a director at 30, uh, there are people in, in design where they, they have these titles, manager, director, but sure. it's, sometimes it's at a small company, right? Where it's sure. the title that they've received. You really did lead a, a vast team at a well-known, well-respected corporation. So this is, you know, to speed that quickly in your career. Amazing. I think I probably could have used a couple more years under my belt. I mean, definitely the first year or two. I did, did not know what I was doing, but I was curious enough to learn and, and to realize this is a whole other skill set and I, I needed to, to improve. Mm. Um, and, you know, my goal was always, I always said to my team, like, my goal is to have the most heavily recruited team. And you're like, what do you mean? You're like, I want you all to be getting job offers all the time because what we're doing is so good. And I want you to choose to, to work for me, you know, internally and externally. I want other companies and internally other people to be like, we want Brian on our team. And I want Brian to be like, no, I want to stay working for Michael. So I want to like earn their, their respect. Um, oh my week. God, Michael. I love that. You just said that. I, I just want to pause and acknowledge that kind of perspective. Um, because to me, that's rare. Um, to, to be that magnanimous, right? That you build this team of some of the best talented people and that they're also receiving offers, but that in the end, out of everything, that they choose their best choice and that that best choice becomes you or, and retains yeah. and can, yeah. and main, you know, that, they, that you maintain that mutual respect. And, I, I just, and it's not to say that like working for me is gonna be easy. Uh, but, but I want them yes. to know, like, I'm making the best work of my life. And I remember in that first year, I was, you know, I had inherited a team largely initially and was working with a, a, a young designer who, who had a really good reputation for being, you know, a little bit of a young star, but I was trying, I was pushing him because I wanted him to see like the business side of things. But also I think when you are when you're working at that level, it can be hard to improve because everybody's just telling you how great you are. And, you know, I remember I was pushing him on just like dialing in this presentation more so that we were presenting to the executives. There was more of a more well-rounded business case, brand case, everything was cohesive. And, and I could tell he was getting a little afraid with me and he, he snapped and he, he was just like, you know, Michael, like, why do you even care? Why do you, they don't, they don't care about this. Like, why are you pushing yes. me? Why are you pushing me so hard? Like they don't care. And I was like, Hey, you know, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for us. I'm doing it because this is what I know to be the best work. 
I know you're capable of it. Someday you're, you're not going to work for me and you're going to show this work and it's going to be the best work you ever did. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I'm doing it. Not to just check some boxes off for, for my boss's boss. I don't want to just do the minimum of what I could get away with. I want to do, you know, I want to raise the level. Yeah. And, but anyway. and you're raising a level, not just for you, but you're raising a level for him. Yes. For the people that work for you. And to, that's such a great point. There's a recruitment, a match that we're making. And there was a candidate who was saying, why are they still asking me questions? They should want me by now. And I had to help this designer understand that the company is asking because they care that much. Right. Well, and it's certainly about what they ask for and, and what are they looking to understand, right? But pushing, and you're in the role of teaching and guiding someone that, to me, just pushing someone to do to more, to do more, that's because you care about that person getting to that next level. Right. And, yeah. that, and I'm not saying like, I don't, I don't work crazy hours. I'm not, by saying I have high standards, it doesn't mean like pounding your head against the wall. It's just more about stepping back and, and looking at the work and being like, how can we raise it? Because I, I, don't, I don't work crazy hours. I don't want people that work for me to work crazy hours. I, I, I think having downtime uh, is critical to the creative process. Your, your brain has to turn off and think about other things so you can do your best work. Yeah. But when you're doing that work, again, it's not just about getting it out the door. It's about how can we push the boundaries a little bit? And then I became chief design officer at 35. So again, it was very, very young for that. I had, you know, maybe uh, by the end, 20-ish person team, 25 person team. I was there for five years. And again, an amazing experience, a growth experience. There's, there's things I look back and I'm like, I could have done better, of course. If that's not the case, you've stopped learning, right? So that's bad. <laughs> but um, I'm really proud of that work, proud of the the team got to build the team, got to design the headquarters, rename the master brand because uh, the the brand was just like a generic acronym, and and I helped rename it to Sound United, and and so really kind of set a more aspirational tone for what could have just been a holding company, you know, a conglomerate with a bunch of brands under it, and create a place that people hopefully really wanted to work and and were inspired to work in. That was the goal. I love that inspiration and I love um, how that informed the name, the rebrand of the company. Yeah. It, it, it's such a timely, I'm, I, I'm so glad of, throughout this conversation, you've touched on a couple of different points and it's coming to me such, such a timely moment to talk about this because I'm hearing more. Let me just say that through our work as coach, as a career coach for creative professionals and as recruiters and just being so connected to so many of you and having these conversations, I'm hearing more and more about toxic environments. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing, and, and you know, I, I understand this has happened prior to pandemic, but I think I'm hearing more and more cases now post pandemic. Think about it, every market, every industry, every company in those spaces, everything changing. So in the world of business, uh, you know, the status quo business model is upended in every possible way. Everybody knows to the grindstone, we've got, you know, we're losing our revenue, we're losing our market, we're, you know, we've got to solve this problem that's percolating out of nowhere. And quality of life is the one thing I'm hearing a lot of companies sacrificing 
sacrificing to the point that then all of a sudden they may have had a great department and now they're losing it. I mean, I would love your take on, I mean, it's, I, I think we already know, I, we just heard your perspective on this. You're magnanimous, like while we're building something audacious to respect talent as well. And I love that, you know, that philosophy. By the way, this is not just only corporate. I've heard the same thing on consultancy oh, side, for sure. you know? So great environments, great culture. It's not versus toxic culture. I think it's a matter of whoever's running the business, running the company, running the department, understanding, respecting people and talent as, as talent, right? Yeah. One of my one of my clients who I've mentioned to you in the past, John Stein, who's the, the founder of Cure, uh, he likes to say, it's easy to run a good company when, when the economy is doing well. It's a challenge to run a good company when the economy is doing poorly. And that's, that's when your real, oh, excuse me, that's when your real leadership skills become apparent, right? Yes. It's just like when things all of a sudden it's, you know, money's not just falling from trees and it's, it's hard not to panic and, and I'm not perfect either. You know, I, I have some, some thoughts on it and some aspirations and I try, but um, yeah, I think it's important to do your best to isolate the team from that you know it's, it's okay to feel unsure yeah. uh it's okay to to have some anxiety as a leader uh, and, and it's okay to to inform your team of that you want to be transparent yeah. and say like hey here's the issues that the business is, is facing but i think you need to shield them as, as much as you can from that emotional stress and mm. you know somebody somebody said to me once a long time ago that being a good leader is being a shit umbrella <laughs> and you're, you're you're just stopping the crap from falling on your team yeah, yeah. them so that that you know they can do you're setting the vision you know i've always been a, an what i call an owner operator so i'm always someone mm -hmm. who's going to be have my hands in the work too but yes. also want to protect them from you know the, the client is freaking out like that's not uh, you know mm -hmm. that's not a young designer who's working on renderings problem to deal with. That's my problem. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. The other term I've heard is, and, and I call myself an owner servant or mm -hmm. leader servant, right? Because as we are leading, you're right. There's a point where I love the shit umbrella <laughs> where we are kind of protecting our team. I mean, there's a mission that collectively we're all working towards, mm -hmm. but, it, and you're right. It also when you share with your team, what you're working on and the initiatives and the challenge, the goals and the challenges, they can support as well from whatever vantage point they're on, whatever position and vantage point they have, whatever part of the team they're they're on, right? Yeah, because as you, you frame things, it can be so powerful. You know, I, I remember, so that client, Kire, you know, I, I, they've been a retainer client for, for my second longest retainer client, I think going on a little over three years. And you know, the, the trust was, was so strong that I became basically like a contract chief creative officer where um, their head of product and their head of marketing actually kind of dotted line reported to me, even though I was a consultant. And that, that company, Cure, recently, uh, as of a few weeks ago, was acquired by a bigger company named Carnegie, which makes environmentally friendly, uh, like bio-based materials out of, and they're based in New York. And, you know, some People, there's always anxiety, right, with that acquisition and, mm -hmm. you know, just coaching those team members to be like, this is going to be great for you because now the company is going to be owned by this bigger company. 
there's going to be more opportunities for you to advance and, and move up for you to do different things to learn different things to to go places like the budgets to, to activate things that maybe you haven't had before so you know it's all in that framing of like yes change can be scary but also check out all these other potential outcomes you could have when you take it well, I think you're talking about owning that change, owning and seeing every perspective of it. Um, when you really have a method to see it positively, it, all of a sudden the, the opportunities present themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's scary for me too. So I think to empathize like, oh, you know, I had my, my, my cozy client relationship uh, with mm -hmm. you know, the CEO of Cure and we had a great rhythm going and, and now I have to build that all over again with a, a new team of people and, and you're like oh that's a challenge and but you know it's going to be worth it because again it'll lead to more interesting things yeah so. it'll, well it certainly allows them so much more access to funds and resources right to to be right. able to grow yeah i'm hearing something in the way you frame your answers a certain mindset a certain perspective can you talk about your philosophy on life, your mindset, your, do you think about those things in a certain prescribed yeah. way or, or, cause it just, yeah. you know, I love how you're respecting, regardless of whatever goals you're working on for the company, for your clients, how you respect your talent um, and understanding and hearing your, the clients that you're dealing with, regardless of how much they know about design or do they need to? No, they don't, but let understanding them and where they are. I, I think you know, something reminds me of a question someone asked me recently. They're like, oh, how do you feel about being an expert? <laughs> and I was like, you know, that's not even a word that ever comes into my mind. Like, I don't, I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as like someone who's, who's here to, to help and, but to help move things forward, you know, like mm -hmm. that's my, that's my kind of relentless pursuit of like, okay, like what can I find here to mm -hmm. advance things? And I, I feel like that's kind of our job. Like I'm a huge, I'm a, some, some people who, who know me know I'm a huge science fiction nerd. And there's this, new, <laughs> there's this newer movement in science fiction called solar punk. So it's like, you know, we had like steampunk and cyberpunk and solar punk notionally and I'm going to land this plane too, Angela, don't worry. <laughs> but I love solar, it. solar punk notionally. Well, I know you will. <laughs> okay. Is about this idea that science fiction writers as creators have written all these bleak, you know, cyberpunk stories. And like, that's the world that is now coming true. And so the theory there is like, okay, we need to turn our creative mm -hmm. powers as, as science fiction authors to create stories that show the way forward in a positive way okay we've mm. seen the, the negative oh potential. we're talking about visualization and and manifesting because right, they right. visualized it and right. now it's manifested right and so they're like stop writing these these dystopian yeah. futures and start yeah. writing futures about how we get there how we get to a yes. better place and and I, I think as a designer or maybe just as a person that, that really resonates with me because I'm like, yeah, there's all this stuff happening. There's a pandemic, there's, you know, financial uh, angst, there's, there's all these different things, but it's our job to pick up those pieces and put them together in a way that is positive. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I, I try to, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I shirk away from the term optimist a little bit because, uh, you know, I'm very realistic of like, these are the things we do have to deal with. These are the pieces that I have, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm confident enough, I guess, in my abilities and the people I'm working with who have hired me that we're going to create something great out of that or as best as we can. Um, that is absolutely beautiful. To your, to your person who was, um, you know, saying like, why are they still asking me questions? Um, you know, I think that hiring is the most important decision any creative leader can make because, because, you know, yeah, I, I think when I was, and I made this, I, I know this because I made the mistake of like, oh, I can coach somebody and, and get them there, but I, I can't make them a, a, a new person from, from whole cloth, right? They are who they are. And so I think it behooves companies to really spend the time to make sure they're hiring the right people. And, and now as a, as a consultant, it's, it's my job to find the right clients. And I spend a lot of time with clients before we ever sign a contract to just figure out if they're, they're people that we want to work with. The way I can do that, there's two, there's two things that allow me to do that. One, reputation, right? Almost all of my work comes through my reputation. Um, and, and, you know, that's beyond portfolio, right? You can look at the work, but what people say is, is important. Uh, and then two, by staying small. So, you know, we only take three clients at a time. Right now, I've had two retainer clients, one for four years, one for three years. So that only leaves one extra slot open. And when that slot comes open, I, I always let clients know, like, there's one slot open right now. And, you know, we'll see how it goes. And, and we, we say no. And, um, you know, we just started a, a new year-long project for that third slot. And it's with a client who, you know, I've worked with in the past when they were at a different company. I, I know I like working with them. I know they're going to help create a great solution. And so you're like, it's kind of a, you know, the reputation cuts both ways, right? So for the client and the consultant. <laughs> I love what you just said. There's so much there. Michael, a couple, you touched on so many great pieces. First of all, understanding how to select the right company that's going to understand your process. I'm hearing that, right? Um, And being really selective because I know it takes so much time and effort to orchestrate and deliver these incredible solutions, products for these corporations that I know hundreds of designers out there, it's like, how how do they know who's going to really take them to that finish line, right? And so hearing that you need to know which companies are qualified to really to be eligible to go through this process with you, because this is a partnership. And, 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 you know, to that point too, we, you know, as in our recruitment, we don't work with companies now that have a toxic environment, just going back to that. I mean, it just, as that mediator, you know, we've always believed just as in recruitment, obviously we're monetarily, are contracted by the employers, but our philosophy and goal has always been to find and create matches that both employer and talent grow and gain from that connection. Yeah. Right? Cause you're going to, you're going nice. to place, you're going to yeah. place someone there and they're going to be like, Angela, you told me this place is going to be amazing. You sold me, you know, and, so your, your yeah. reputation's on the line too, right? Absolutely. But, and it bears on our hearts for us right. to see if we've moved someone through. And right. so our bar now is that high standard where and sometimes i'll tell you just from a recruiter standpoint 
you, you get companies that's like, yes, 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 it's all good. <laughs> you know, so you've got to do that extra due diligence to really screen that out uh, and to just say, and then we've even had a client where partway through realized and had to gracefully bow out, give them back that initial retainer and say, enough, we're, we're not going to bring great people to this, right, and change their lives. But yeah. something, I mean, so I love your perspective on that and really respecting anybody. This is, to me, there's a discussion here about power. You know, if you're a founder, an employer, a leader giving opportunity and there's talent, there, I, I see kind of a power play with employers on top and talent below, but I'm watching this change right now. And in this, you know, my hand, if no, if no one's watching this, you can see that employers are on top, right? There's that right. mental cons construct, but now it's shifting like this. Mm -hmm. And this is great where side by side, whoever offers an opportunity, a company, an employer, a client and talent, talent realizing to own what your, your gift to own your space and to own creating that balance, right. in that energy power play between, you know, uh, yeah. Um, something I think people, are, people are really looking at total compensation and, and by total compensation, I don't just mean monetary, right? Like, Right. There could be some monetary aspects. There could be equity. Yeah. There could be great thing bonuses, but there could be do, am I going to be in the city I want to be in? Am I going to yeah. do, can I be at home sometimes? Can, yeah. you know, yeah. what other things are going on that's going to raise my quality of life? And, and I think for the first time in a long time, I think people are really thinking about that. Yeah. I say this, the newest, the competition today for employ employers is quality of life. And that's, it's not even other companies. Quality of life is the biggest competitor for all employers. And you've got to understand and respect that. That must come first, right? You were talking, I want to go back too, to what you were talking about sci-fi. I love sci-fi. I, you know, I, Isaac Asimov, while there's so many new ones, is still my favorite. And when yeah. you talk about science fiction creating, talk about it's, there's an interesting spin. You know, I think we, I, I believe in visualizing, manifesting positivity. You're right, positivity. If you're only thinking positive, you're Pollyanna and not realizing what are all the op other options that you've got to prepare for and think about. And if anything, science fiction, talk about really future pacing and futurism and, and, and how much has come true. Look at Star Trek, right? But, and, and actually, now they think about it, Isaac Asimov is really the foundation series. Mm -hmm. it, we can, you know, write. It, I think it's understanding it. change that we're moving through. And first, there's change and everything's unsettled and we're not accustomed to it. But then it's, I think the design methodology actually does allow us to look at everything that's changing and understand all the elements mm -hmm. and, and how to make sense of solutions out of that because out of change there is that if you you're right if you see it in the right perspective there is that opportunity to dis, to discover and create the better solution right that comes out of that agreed yeah i remember reading an interview with asimov when he was saying that he based the whole foundation series on the book um, the rise and fall of the roman empire so it's it's basically like a historical one for one of like okay like that book starts with like the Roman empire at its peak and it, it's clear it's going to decline, but there, you know, this group of people are like, how do we save the information for future generations? Right. And, and that's, that's basically the foundation series, right? The foundation is trying to protect the knowledge 
because they know the fall of the empire is coming. And so even though it's a very, you know, it's a trying story of this collapse of this empire, there's this group of people who are like, we're going to make it right for the future. Mm. And then there's that, I think what part of some, it's been a while actually since I remember reading the foundation series is my favorite, even yeah. all the new stuff that's out, right? But there's something about retaining lessons because we've yeah. kind of moved through these already. Right. So, oh my gosh, so much to learn there. It's crazy. I, I have to go back and read that for sure. Michael, yeah. I, I love how, you know, we have our standard questions that we have ready it, you know, for us to think about what we want to talk about. But I just love how this conversation has just meandered and covered so many different topics. Thank you so much for- Thank you. Yeah, yeah you know, I love what we do, so. I think that uh, it's, this is how many people, I've, every time I talk to someone, when I ask them, how'd you find design? And so it was some kind of accident, it used to be actually more so, some accidental stepping into this, what is this? <laughs> and then yeah. not, once you get a taste of design, how could you ever leave? Or this kind of perspective of how to think um, take two places, right? It allows you so much more clarity. Yeah, I think it is. It's. Uh, I was saying to a, a young student, actually yesterday. I was in. I was in Boston yesterday um, for some client meetings, and then met up with some of my former students for for coffee. And and uh, one was looking for a job and had some anxiety around that. And I was like, you know, being a designer is not a title; it's a person. And it's like if you're that, no, no one can say you are. You are not a designer. You just you are. You are not. And um, and so just trying to to remind her of like. You'll get, you'll get that job and you are a designer. You don't need the title to be one. Yes. I mean, it, I think being a designer, it, it's a mindset for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, the, the thing I think for designers, to be honest, I think there's so many choices. Um, it is hard for most people because there's so many, it's, this is the paradox of choice. So I think, honestly, I think you are very fortunate. I think you've had some amazing steps in your career each one i think compounded has you know allowed you to evolve um your career to this point and i think it's beautiful but Thank there you. there are quite a few people who you know sometimes don't know what they need to do to iterate through their career to to evolve it i mean this is what drew me to finally move to move into career coaching because all the things that i knew telling employers that didn't necessarily to some point Honestly, I wish all employers were like you <laughs> to care to that degree, you know, but to tell an employer something, it, it doesn't really land. It does. It, they don't need that depth of knowledge. It's the individual who has to walk through making all those hundreds of choices each step of the way. But uh, yeah, I, if anything, the listening to you today to hear how you've moved through, you know, what you your career um, and how each experience has really helped you bring you to where you are today. It's, it's beautiful. And I think there's a certain beautiful mindset that you've always had where it's not just what you're building for yourself, understanding what you're building for your customer, the corporations, how your team supports you, but yet you're respecting them for what, how they're growing. I think that's such a beautiful perspective that you have. So thank you. Love yeah. it. I, yeah. I always, I tell new clients, like, you know, my, my mission and, and, I won't stop really until we have a solution that we're both proud of. Cause mm -hmm. if it's just, it, it has to be that way. You know, if just one of us is proud of it, like it's probably not going to work. Um, yeah. But so that kind of 
trying to get to that mutual state where everybody feels really good about about the solution and you know I think for for younger listeners I think I think the most important part of my career is is and in, in having a vision for myself and and you know taking the same creative process you use on projects and applying that to your career and trying to chart out like where do I want to be how do I get there uh, you know do that work that's an investment that that no one can take away from you yeah believing in it believing in it and shooting for that always mm -hmm. I think there's no limit to your dreams there's no limit to the goals shoot high always I love it Michael, thank you so much for spending your time with me today. Uh, there's so much that you went through and just sharing your perspective. I'm sure so many people are inspired, going to be inspired by listening to this. So for everyone who's uh, listening in, yeah, pass the word. I think this is just so much that Michael shared for us today. And there's so much we can take about our careers, our perspective about our work, how to work with companies. So thank you so much, Michael, for being a Thanks. part of this. Yeah, thank you, Angela. I really appreciated the conversation. Thank you for sharing. For everyone who's listening in, Michael, where can we, where can they find you again? Can you repeat your Instagram? Sure. Yeah, uh, um, Instagram is at D2Lo, letter D, number two, L-O, uh, phonetic spelling of my name uh, on, on, uh, on the web at, is uh, Michael, michaeldtulo.com. Twitter is at Michael DiTulo if you want to follow follow some other thoughts there. But uh, you know, I'm pretty accessible, and you can and always feel free to to reach out. I'm always mm -hmm. I'm always open to to have a little chat. And I know I think you mentioned earlier, although it may not have been during this conversation. I think you said you're pretty busy, so if you're hiring, so people can reach out to you there as well. Yes, uh, yeah, we're pretty pretty slammed. Uh, <laughs> which is great. I, I was telling Angela before this, I think I have like yeah. 10 trips planned in the next six months. Oh, it's, it's been um, a really fortunate to, to have clients who, who want to work with us. It's, mm -hmm. I appreciate Love them. I Love it. Um, everyone, thank Mike, thank Mike, thank you again for joining us today. And for everyone listening in, I hope you had a blast um, listening in on our conversation. It's so beautiful where this conversation went all the things that we covered designing futures give us feedback let us know what you think um, if you're interested and you enjoy our conversations certainly you can follow us at uh, yayideology.com or on social at yayideology we we also do our lives on linkedin as well as on facebook um, and if you want to hear more about thriving in your design career head over to thrivebydesign.today everyone have a great day we'll see you till next time bye